Brandon Webb is a combat decorated Navy SEAL sniper and with the changing tides turned innovative entrepreneur. And I think the motivation was actually, when I think back on it, was especially with a lot of my early nonfiction books was dealing with kind of the trauma of losing friends in the war, losing my best friend in Benghazi in 2012, uh, Glenn Doherty. Um, it, it was just an outlet for me, a positive outlet for me to deal with a lot of this frustration and, and um, trauma that I had dealt with or was still processing. During his last tour as a U.S. Navy chief, he was head instructor at the SEAL Sniper School, which produced some of America's most legendary snipers. Now, I, for the first time in my life, I, I was, I'd lost the business, I was divorced, sitting alone in a house, you know, with no family, and I started writing. Brandon is a multiple New York Times best-selling author, entrepreneur, and Harvard Business School alumni. How do you move forward? One of the basic things we did was... Before we begin today's episode, I would really appreciate a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. This helps to get the message out there to men and therefore encourage and inspire them to level up their life. So without further ado, this is the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan. Thank you for tuning in. So Brandon, absolutely honored, delighted to have you in this Modern Warrior Podcast. We've been trying to make this happen for a period of time and delighted that we finally made it. And I know you've been busy. You've been busy promoting your new book, Blind Fear, but this is not the first book you've written i believe you've published 14 now and uh yeah. i was looking through your website at all these books which all seem incredible some thrillers some uh, true stories and out of all of those books that you've written so far because there's more to come out of the ones you've written so far which one has meant the most to you or which one was your favorite out of those 14 so far I would say I'm going to break them, break them down how I like to categorize music and movies by, by kind of genre. So I would say, and, and I'll keep it simple, nonfiction, fiction. So nonfiction being books about real life, I would say Mastering Fear, which was inspired by one of your earlier guests, Kamal Ravikant. I don't know if he talked about that that book at all. That book really had to do with a lot of what helped me uh, in my own life and adversity and and then applying the same principles of mental management and positive psychology, which I learned as a Navy SEAL sniper instructor uh, when I was running the, the sniper program from, uh, what was it, 2003 to 2006. Um, I used that on Kamal. Kamal extremely successful guy, one of my favorite human beings came to me and said, look, I want to learn how to swim. I, I never, my parents never taught me. Um, I mean, I can only imagine how that is. I remember he even told me about this pool party in New York out in the Hamptons where all the, all the New Yorkers go in the summer, right? Um, not the poor New Yorkers. 
very wealthy. <laughs> oh, he wouldn't be hanging around there, no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's this pool party, and it creates this stress for him, like, because everyone's jumping in and swimming and enjoying, and he, I think I'm always just at a point in his life where he's like, okay, I got to get over this. So I said, look, give me a week, and I'll teach you how to swim. And I think Kamal's initial reaction was like, God, oh, Brandon's this, you know, former SEAL. He's going to like chuck me in the pool and yell at me. No, that's not what I did at all. And I spent a week with him and applied these very tiny steps, but meaningful and purposeful. And then gave him visualization homework every night. And he started in the in the deep end doing, and he didn't like putting his face in the water, which a lot of people who are don't know how to swim and are uncomfortable, they don't, they don't like the face in the water. Well, I made him do it a hundred times until he was bored and going, okay, I got it. What's next? And I just kept these tiny little baby steps. By the end of the week, he could swim. Like he's he's not going to try off the Olympic trials or go to the Olympic trials for swimming. But Kamal could swim and he was comfortable. And, and rather grab for the edge, I taught him to float on his back and kind of get his breath and composure. Um, and he did a phenomenal job. And he said to me on the subway ride back, this was in New York when when we were both living in the city. He said, Brandon, you have to write a book about this. You changed my life. Like, I can't believe what you did to me. Like, you got in my head and you you dealt with with issues, you know, instead of just like trying to teach me the strokes, um, you you really got in my head and showed me the, the power of, of mental management. And so that that's my favorite nonfiction book because I think it's helped the most people. It's, it's been translated into as many languages as, as my first book, The Red Circle, which is more about my life story. But I like mastering fear because I still to this day get uh, DMs on Instagram and social media from people that say how much the book has helped them uh, overcome a fear, uh, change a relationship, change career. Um, has, there and, been, has, has there been a story or a DM there that's that's stuck with you? Yeah, I had a woman from Russia recently um, who was kind of dealing with the Ukraine war and being trapped inside Russia and just the, just all of that. And she said, without this book, she did, she wouldn't know what she would, she would do and how to kind of process what's going on. So that, that was probably the re most recent one. Um, and then I would say, uh, you know, I, I wrote a bunch of nonfiction and, and I like nonfiction and I'm work, working on a, a new concept we can maybe talk about later um, about kind of, mental toughness and how to how to sustain that across a lifetime uh, but but that's for a later discussion if you want the on the on the fiction side i had this idea when i was before i was a navy seal i was a search and rescue swimmer on helicopters and i was on board an aircraft carrier it's a huge navy ship with six thousand people aircraft it's like a floating city and, and we had a sexual predator on the boat he had assaulted seven women and never got caught and it's just that that stuck with me being a fan of uh silence of the lambs and hannibal lecter and i was like man imagine if it was rather than a sexual predator if it was a serial killer because on the aircraft carrier or a military ship like that there's no fbi there's no or like mechanism for solving complex crime uh, so I'd imagine like a, a very smart criminal could really exploit that so i had this story in my mind and the other thing was uh, the captain of the Abraham Lincoln, the aircraft carrier I was on, was a really, really bad leader. Um, I talk about that in, in the Red Circle. And so when I wrote, uh, I had this idea and I, I pulled in a friend of mine, John Mann, who've who we've written, him and I have written 
bunch of books together. I said, John, you got to help me finish this. I had started it, writing it. None of us had written or neither of us had written fiction before. And it's very different than nonfiction. And so I finally, after 10 years, I wrangled him in to help me finish this thing. And what I like about Steel Fear is, and especially for your audience, I think Steel Fear, it's its an amazing kind of Jason Bourne-like thriller. And it's its a hero's origin story. And our hero, um, I don't want to spoil it hmm. for, the re- for the listeners, but um, it also is a book about leadership. It, it's a, it's a, one of the things, one of my favorite writers was uh, James Mishner as a kid growing up on a sailboat with, with no television. I love Mishner because he tells these incredible epics about, he wrote a book called Hawaii, which was essentially a, a history of Hawaii and the founding of Hawaii, how the Polynesians came up from, um, from Polynesia and, and sailing canoes and it settled on, on Hawaii. And then later the, you know, the, um, the Americans came, but I was like, man, history books should be like this. It should be this entertaining because he's writing this incredible uh, story about history and it's based on true fact, but it, but it's, it teaches you history, but at the same time, it's, it's an entertaining story. Um, and so steel fear is, is the first in the series, right? We did steel fear, cold fear, and then blind fear came out last last couple of weeks, you can read them in any order, but Steel Fear I like because I've had people say, wow, I could teach a whole leadership course on Steel Fear alone because you you have good leadership and bad leadership. And something I like to do, even in my fiction books, is teach. I, I love being a teacher in the military. And, and I think that, you know, there, there's there's a lot of opportunities. If you're going to tell a good story. You might as well kind of teach a lesson. And one of my favorite authors, again, is Ayn Rand, right? She, people are obsessed with her philosophy and, and I identify with her, her philosophy quite a bit. Um, and, and you read her book, like Atlas Shrugged and, and it, everything she described in that book. And I don't know when it was written, but, but probably I, I would say fifties or sixties, you could, take a chapter out of that and look what's happening to the American government right now and how dysfunctional it is and how you know, these people are so out of touch with the reality on, on both sides of the political parties. But anyway, that's a very long answer. Those are my two favorite books. <laughs> that I I've love, read. No, we love that. Love that. Love long answers here. So it's all good, man. Yeah. Uh, have you been able to identify what's inspired you or what the sort of driving source is for, you, is for you when it comes to writing all these books because it is a lot of books it is a lot of writing it's, it's a lot of effort it's a lot of time it's a lot of discipline dedication commitment what's the drive there for you to actually continue pursuing this I think the first the first time I, I remember writing like purposefully was I was I saw on the news it's when I was out of the military and I left the military in 2006 and I really just want to spend more time with my kids. And I was at the time trying to save my marriage. Um, th- thankfully marriage ended on good terms and I have a good relationship with, with uh, their mom. Um, but I remember I was just, I'd lost a business and I was just like, what do I do with my life? Um, you know, I was, I had all the success and achieved everything I, I I'd set out to, except now I, for the first time in my life, I, I was, I'd lost the business. I was divorced. 
sitting alone in a house, you know, with no family. And I started writing. I saw on the news, if your listeners remember back when the Navy SEAL snipers rescued Captain Phillips, uh, the pirates off Somalia took him hostage and they took out the pirates in a coordinated shot. And so I wrote this I wrote this fictional account of what that would have been like. And I sent it to some magazines and I, I think FHM and in, in the UK picked it up and paid me for it and said, Hey, keep it coming. And that was the first time I had done any writing like that. And and it was, I had a few friends like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Like you're, you know, you're not, that doesn't happen to many people. And so it just gave me a little bit of encouragement to keep writing. And, and I think the motivation was actually, when I think back on it, was especially with a lot of my early nonfiction books, was dealing with kind of the trauma of losing friends in the war, losing my best friend in Benghazi in 2012, uh, Glenn Doherty. Um, it, it was just an outlet for me a positive outlet for me to deal with a lot of this frustration and and um, trauma that I had dealt with or was still processing, you know? Um, and so, and, and then I realized, wow, this is something I actually enjoy and, and, and I'm good at, and good at. And so I just kept going. You've, you've written a book on Benghazi as well, haven't you? I'd imagine that was a uh, very yeah. difficult and yet. Yeah. Piece of writing. Yeah, for sure. I was pissed, man. I mean, I just was on a podcast last week talking about this. Um, I was really upset because um, it was during the Obama's second term election. So was when Benghazi went down, um, you know, the two Americans were killed, uh, Ty Woods and, and my friend Glenn Doherty, uh, rescued, rescuing everyone from the state department compound in Benghazi with the exception of the ambassador Stevens, you know, who, who suffocated uh, with, by smoke inhalation, inhalation. I was upset because the government um, had paraded, you know, Glenn's family around the white house for this press moment. They told, you know, these senior officials told, you know, Glenn's sister and the mom, Barbara, wow, your son's a hero. Don't worry. We're going to take care of everything. And then after the funeral, the bills started coming in and, and the CIA refused to pay the life insurance payment because there was a technicality. They, they mandated these guys have a million dollar life policy. Well, they're like, sorry, some fine print. You know, it's like those Netflix agreements. No one reads. Um, and so no life insurance, no death benefits. So the, the mom had to pay. I think close to 50,000 in legal fees just to bury her son who was, and I just felt like the government, this guy was a hero, right? At least pay to bury the guy. Um, so I was, I was really pissed. And then there was all this kind of government cover up going on. Um, and um, anyway, that's why Benghazi was important to me. And we were, I was running, uh, you know, I still today run a, defense news site called softrep.com and we had a couple sources top level sources within the state department that saw the cover-up going on and so we just we leaned into it pretty heavy we wrote a book about it we reported on it um and i just you know softrep has always been about just getting the truth out not not spinning it one way or another I mean, look, in today's modern media, you have to have a 
catchy title um, for, for sure, but we we don't spin things at soft rep. Like we just we're we're truth sayers, and we've lost and won fans over and over again because we tell like it is. People are like, oh, why would you pu- publish a video of Americans being ambushed in Niger? I was like, you guys didn't even know it that we had American troops in Niger before. Now you're outraged and you complain about cancel culture. Now you, you now you're trying to cancel us. They, we had people um, present uh, like fifty thousand signatures for us to take that video down, and I was like, look go fuck yourself right like the same constitutional rights i i fought for um you know is the the right to free speech it, the news doesn't always make people happy but that that's just we've towed that line of soft rep ever since but anyway that's um i, I think people by now get it we've been around for 10 years and, and they've come to find out at least respect us they may not agree with everything we've done but i think that there is a, a respect that from a, a news point of view that we just kind of deliver it how we see it. Um, but yeah, the Benghazi stuff I wrote about it, it, it was, you know, it was that it helped me for sure. Cause we got a lot of, a lot of stuff done. Um, his best friend, one of his best friends, Sean, Sean Lake, who's, who started an amazing company called Bubs. It's, it's a, a supplements business. Um, Sean, went to the, C- the CIA, talked to director Brandon with the family. And we ended up getting um, the families because Glenn wasn't the only person in this situation had been kind of left in the lurch by the government. I think back into the eighties or something like hundreds and hundreds of families, we got back paid. I think they paid out half a million to all these families and Glenn. So it did have a silver lining. Um, but that's the thing. That's, that's the beautiful thing about America. It is a country even though we have our issues now, it's still a country where the people, the citizens really do get together. They can't make a difference. And, and so, you know, we got that done. Um, and, you know, I, I think overall, I, I kind of put that in the past. <laughs> um, it was a, a tough loss, but, but, uh, but some good came of it. Yeah. The power of people, the power of perseverance. And uh, yeah. was Benghazi written then, do you feel, from a perspective of exposing the government's downfalls or was it written to help you process the pain of losing your best friend or was it both? I think it was both. I think because we were seeing that it was everyone, everyone wanted to just pin the blame on Hillary Clinton. Cause at the time she was the head of the department of state, but, but in reality it wasn't, it, she's kind of a figurehead of the department of state. She's really not, you know, call it, call her the CEO or, or maybe even like a chairman of the board would be a more, more of a good comparison where the, the guy really running it, this Patrick Kennedy, he was this, he's like this career bureaucrat that's just thrown everybody under the, under the bus to kind of rise to the top in uh you know, true game of Thrones fashion. It's just like slitting people's throats. This guy is a bad guy. And it was really him that had ignored these you know multiple security requests in Benghazi and it just became complacent and, and almost I would say just completely incompetent um and, and so it was and it was him and Hillary trying to like because she was being right in the middle of this mess of this re-election and they were trying to just use it as a chink in the armor to go after Obama um and 
it was just like, okay, we got to tell the true story. Like we, they're trying to, um, you know, they withheld the, the ambassador's laptop for 30 days to scrub it before they turned it over to the FBI. Um, this was Kennedy and Hillary Clinton. It's like all this stuff that was happening. And I, and we were talking directly to people that had their hands on the laptop. Like these, our sourcing was great. We had, we published ambassador Stevens personal handwritten diary with the last entry was never ending security threats, dot, dot, dot. Um, so we just really wanted to tell the story of what happened because people were confused. Like, why are we in Benghazi? Why is America, why did America help kind of overthrow Gaddafi? And and now we're still today, Libya is a failed state, right? Um, and so we just wanted to get the truth out there. And at the same time, yeah, I was pissed. I wanted to hold people accountable for this negligence. And and the, the shameful thing is, and this this is kind of something I've I've written about recently on Software Up is look at the the pullout from Afghanistan. I think everyone can agree it was a total disaster, right? We've left almost ninety billion dollars of equipment, weapons, equipment, freaking spin bikes, weightlifting stuff, like just a ton of stuff. Now the Taliban is stronger than ever, and and just the way we withdrew from Afghanistan was was a, a shame. Um, and an embarrassment and nobody was held accountable. Like there's no accountability. And and I went, I went back to business school a few years ago. And one of the things I've learned is in an organization is these signals of, of no accountability or a signal of something happening. And there's no, if there is no like person held accountable, for instance, that sends a signal to the rest of the organization that this you can get away with this stuff and it's it's not a good thing you know and there are good signals and bad signals but we've had a lot of bad signals in the high ranks of the american military and and government in america and that's why we're at this point we are today where i don't i mean i i would march them all off a cliff if i could democrat and republican <laughs> and, and like totally I think modernize the election system. The fact that we're still filling in, you know, bubbles with pens and pencils and voting machines is just madness. You know, it should all be vote by phone, IP address. Like you can, for sure, we do every the most secure private things in our lives. We do on our cell phones. For sure, we can vote on the cell on the phone. Yeah, you feel very passionate about this, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about it just because you know I care about America. I'm, I'm dual citizen. I was born in Canada, but my mom's American and I, and I was pretty much raised in America and fought, fought for America 13 years, six months, six days. <laughs> That's how long I did. So yeah, I do care. I do. People have asked me, why don't you run for office? I, I think I can do more with my writing. I can. And at the same time, the political system is so toxic. I wouldn't want to subject my own family to that. It's just not something I I, I would want to do. I I did my time, you know. Yeah. So you've uh, you've fought with the sniper. Now you're fighting with the the pen. Yeah, yeah. I could tell you the you know it's a cliche, but the pen is mightier than the sword, one hundred percent. Yeah. Do you feel like you're winning that battle? I, I wouldn't say I'm. I don't know. I I I don't wouldn't call it winning, but I, do I call it making a difference, like being a voice? Yeah. I mean, I I, I think. These moments, I, I stood up. Look, I was a gun owner in America. I I, I live in Portugal now. Um, I 
there's there's a reason for the Second Amendment. Um, now, is there room for applying some common sense rules around gun ownership? 100%. I was very outspoken about this um, 10 years ago, and I got just flamed by the National Rifle Association, like created websites, Facebook pages about me, how I was a Canadian socialist, like just crazy stuff. Um, it, that to me was a lesson in, okay, maybe I should really think about choosing my battles carefully. Um, but I think if I had wrote that thing today, it would have been, people would have been much more in a, in the mood to listen. And, but, but do people still write me and say, yeah, I, I remember that when you said that now I get it. So, so it makes sense. Like some, I, I believe in courage and sometimes you have to take a stand and, and it's a lonely place to be and an unpopular place. And, and I would say probably something you can relate to um, recently was uh, Sinead O'Connor, right? Like she tore up a picture of the Pope on MT or not MTV, but um, Saturday night live. Uh, she was a, a victim of child abuse at home and also in the Catholic school system. And this was long before, you know, the popular movie Spotlight came out, which was about the exposure of the Catholic church in Boston. And this just pervasive child abuse, like that, a coding system for the sexual predators and they would just move them around. And it went all the way up to the Pope. And, you know, she was back before they even had a term for it was canceled. Like people were just outraged that she could do this, but she was, and now looking back, they're like, oh, she was a hero. Well, you know, those same people were just like flaming her back in the, I, I don't know when that was. I think it was in the probably late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, it was probably early 90s, I'd say. Yeah. 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 And, but I think, you know, that for me, it's like you're, I think, I, I feel like I'll be, my legacy will be judged by a, the culmination of my work and what I stood for and, and the few moments where, yeah, you, you stand up for what you think is, is right. And it's not always, not always popular. You know, it's, it's easy to go with the flow. It's very hard and it takes courage to go, wait a minute, guys, I think this is wrong. Um, and, and to actually speak up about it. And, and that's, you know, that's leadership. Mm -hmm. That's mental toughness as well, which you've yeah. touched on earlier. What's that? What's that look like, and how can we? How can the listeners harness mental toughness? Well, I think they can start with that book, Mastering Fear, because I, I talk about the basic principles uh, that I learned, and, and and I was fortunate enough to work with an Olympic gold medalist who had developed uh, his own program around uh, mental toughness to win the to win the gold um, after he. Had a, he had a meltdown and won silver. Uh, he was a rifle shooter. He won silver in, in Munich, and then later in Quebec, he won. He won the gold medal. But um, yeah, mastering fear is, is a good place to start. It's back to the what I talked about earlier. The what really has me thinking about my next nonfiction book was yeah, I look at these guys like Michael Phelps, right? The guys that most decorated Olympic swimmer in, in his world history, an incredible athlete but after that was over he really suffered with depression and, and kind of like fell off the cliff right the mental cliff and and i think he's been a really good ambassador for speaking out against mental health um but i look at guys in my own community from the navy seal community that these guys i would, I would love to operate with and 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 
go chase bad guys with, but but now they transition and they're they're struggling. They don't have they lost this identity, and and then a lot of them, a lot of them go to a very, very dark place. And you see this in many fields, whether it's it's professional sports, um, business, where people get to the top, but they just flame out and then they're gone. So my my thing is okay, how what are the traits and the habits of the people that are able to sustain this for a lifetime to just go the long, run the long game, right? Like, you know, you look at Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, um, Warren Buffett, um, you know, these other athletes out there like Michael Jordan, right? Just a game all the time for, for life. And so that's something I'm thinking about in my next book is about, um, it's called Invisible Dominance. That's that's the working title, because I think that it would, it's extremely valuable to to really teach people this. And and look, I think it's important to read. And, and but a lot of this stuff I've seen in that category we won't mention that you said it's been overdone. Right? Uh, people are just regurgitating bullshit, you know. And it's like, oh, get up at five thirty and crush it. Do this, do that. Well, it's a lot more than that. Um, a book I, one of the best business books I've read uh, is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, and it's uh, an incredible book because the guy's just brutally honest. He's like, nobody wants, you know, to write a book about firing a best friend, you know, and, and getting stolen from an employee committing suicide, you know, just this stuff. It's like, this is raw, it's real. And we all have, nobody gets out of life unscathed. I don't care who you are. If you're the most famous person, you still got to put your pants on. You still have to go to the doctor and shit happens. Life happens. Um, we all are affected. I have friends. I have a friend who's a billionaire and it's still, I see that he's dealing with the same shit that we all deal, deal with. So I think to me that that's what kind of just clicked to me this year. Okay. That's going to be my next book. Cause I think, you know, I, I can get raw and talk about all, all of my, you know, my uh failures and bumps and bruises and and share with how i've been able to come out the other side and also showcase showcase um, others as well and put together almost a, a curriculum of sorts so people can read it and and it's less of like okay i'm motivated for a little bit you know like four hour work week it's easy to write four hour work week when i, I think tim wrote it he was unemployed you know fuck that's zero hour work week you know um and it's good. It motivates a lot of people, but I, I'm like, okay, how do I teach people to, to be super resilient uh, for a lifetime? And that's something that's interesting to me. Because you've done it yourself. You've had, you've, yeah, you've fallen off 100%. a mental cliff, haven't you? And, yeah. 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 Well, look, I've, I've been kicked to the teeth many times, and just keep come, you know, just able to kind of come back because it's, it's about how you compartmentalize and it truly is having the, the mental fortitude to just kind of go, okay, this happened. It's, it is out of my control. How do I, how do I learn from this and, and, and move on? Um, and uh, one of the, one of the famous philosophers of the modern era is Alan Watts. He's really great about this. It's about living in the, in the now, like you, you and I started the show as totally different people than when we'll leave the show. Um, there really is no future. It's the now, right? So, yeah. Just to give uh, the listeners a bit of value and a bit of 
hope and inspiration perhaps can you share with us one of those moments where you fell off the mental cliff so to speak and you found yourself in the pit and how you began to move forward from that place yeah so you know i think i think when people get in these situations and i'll tell my first story in a minute you you can get overwhelmed because you just you get into this spiral of of thinking about all the negative right and you don't think about the positive and so what happened you know i i can think of a few times like my my father threw me out off the sailboat in Tahiti when I was 16. So I was alone out of the house on my own and Pape to Tahiti had to sail back to Hawaii on my own. That, that, that was a moment. Um, but I really, I was just a scared young, young kid. Um, now fast forward, I joined the Navy. I became a Navy SEAL, was a sniper, got recruited to be a sniper instructor and then was promoted to, to course manager, which means I was in charge of the whole program at 28, I think. Now I find myself 31. I left the military. I'd done a, a startup project, raised some money. We're going to build a racetrack in Southern California. Uh, three and a half years through just this messy California permitting process with environmentalists and, and anti-war people. They would show up at these community meetings and yell at me like I was a baby killer and it was it was crazy um but we got the project approved like they voted unanimously at the planning commission and they voted four to one in favor at this um, the political level it was a board of super I think board of supervisors they and then the this was in 2008 the financial market collapsed anything to do with the real estate project was just like nobody wanted anything to do with it then the the county got sued by an environmental group for supporting our project. So they they imagine the government coming to you and says, um, hey, Gavin, uh, we're getting sued. We'll fight it if you pay our legal fees. Like imagine writing the checks to the government. You're out of your mind. So it, it the whole project blew up. It was a mess because I put my life savings into it. My mom put money into it. Like my all my friends and family, investors, we, we'd raised almost $4 million. Um, and I had half a million wrapped up myself and then poof, it's gone. Then, you know, my wife's at the time, she's like, Hey, I, it's been fun, but you kind of put me through hell with this seal stuff going to war. And it's like, I'm, I'm out. Like, I don't want to be, I want, I want stability. And, uh, which I was like, fair enough. We were in counseling when it happened, but now I was, like I said earlier, um, and she, she had to take the kids up to her family's place north in Northern California because school year was starting. And um, and I was like alone in a house, went from coaching the little league team. Now neighbors are asking me, hey, where, where is everybody? You know, and I'm left to kind of tell those stories like it was it was brutal. And I remember I was in a dark place for probably a week just going, what the fuck am I going to do with myself? Like. Like I've lost everything. And then I was, I remember I was in my Toyota truck on the, on, by scripts um, on this bluff in San Diego. And I talked to my lawyer who was, who was actually gave me some really good advice. He, he, he kind of put things into perspective for me. He said, Brandon, he's like, you're not the first person this has happened to. I see this all the time. Like we raise billions of dollars for biotech companies that just blow up. 
Um, he's like, don't be so hard on yourself. And, and sometimes you just got to know when to walk away. And, and then I, that kind of thought sat with me. And then I, I just had this moment where I said, you know what? I need to kind of practice what I preach with this mental management stuff. I, I know I have the tools and I, I said, okay, I have to reframe my thinking around this. Okay. Yeah. I, I lost some money. I'm divorced, but I have to look at the positives. And really that's, that's, as, it's as simple as that go. Okay. And Churchill said it best. He's like, don't let uh, a crisis go to waste. Cause I, and that's one of my favorite quotes. It is so true. I love a crisis. Like I, I love it when it's like crisis mode. And the pandemic was was a situation like that for me in, in one of my businesses. And, and so I just started reframing things. Okay, divorce, but good relationship with my ex, which is going to mean good relationship with the kids in the future. Um, lost the business, lost all this money, but have the knowledge. I have the knowledge to buy a business, to raise money. Uh, I have, I'm financially way more literate than I was in the military. I couldn't even read a profit and loss statement or balance sheet. Now I'm like financially literate and highly marketable. This was, you know, 2008, very few guys with my skill sets would get out of the military. They would stay for 20, 30 years. I thought it's highly, highly marketable and marketable. In fact, I got headhunted by a, somebody from L3 Communications, a big American defense company, um, ended up working there two years and got paid an incredible amounts of money and, and really helped me rebuild my my savings. And But that was it. That was that moment where I just said, okay, I have to think about the positive. I, I can, there, there just literally is no reason to think about the negative, right? Like if, imagine you're, you're like a hundred meters from the summit of Everest and the storm's moving in and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to go all the way to the bottom, but it's just like, you got to, <laughs> these moments come around and you just have to like accept that whatever it is, is, and how do you focus on the next step and, and moving forward? Like, how do you, how do you move forward? And, and that's, where the positive thinking comes in and nobody wants again nobody also we've all we've all been in this point where you've been around the complainers uh, whether it's in a sports team or a group project and you're just like man you're just like that doesn't do anybody any good like what good is that doing just complaining about it and telling us how we're going to fail and then they're the leaders that push people to the limits because uh, they they're able to kind of drive them and, and paint a picture of, look, this is going to be brutal and you're going to work 90 hour work weeks, but at the end, we're going to all win, you know, and this is going to be worth it because we're going to make something meaningful and, and change the world. And, and those, those are the kind of leaders you want to be around. And, um, you know, there, the, there are people that do get at positions of leadership um, who sh by and lead by fear, and, you know, and, and Trump is one of those leaders, you know, he, he's a fear-based leader. Hitler is the same way, very smart, but they know how to manipulate people and use fear as, as, as a tool. And to me, that's not, that's not somebody that, that I want to follow. Uh, but anyway, th those are, that, that's, that's a brief story of my own. And I've been in those, you know, I've had a few of those situations since I, I've had employees overdose, ex-military guys, like how to get to the funeral talk to the wives it's brutal um, but the best you can do is just you know process it and, and go okay you got to move on and just deal with things um, in a positive way it's just the only way to to really 
be able to kind of sustain a level of, of performance over the long haul. And you got to quit. You do have to quit people too. Uh, relationships, whether they're family members or or uh, or friends, you know that who you hang out with is a huge makes a huge difference mm-hmm. on your on your life. Do you feel you've uh, cultivated this level of tenacity and toughness and courage through your years in the military, or do you think you've always had this within? Has this been something that's been ingrained in you from uh, early age i think it's it's a culmination of leaving home at 16 you know having a few hundred dollars to my name and can you talk to me about that process of leaving home what was that like yeah so the brief story is i'd grown up um my parents my dad lost a, a big construction business in this in the late 70s and my mom and him had always had this dream to sail around the world so they they said okay we're just gonna buy the sailboat and we're gonna take our family cruising so we'd done a few trips in mexico i've been homeschooled on and off and and then you know we lived on the sailboat for five years in, in ventura california and my dad was a tough you know he's a tough character my grandfather's this big Irish guy with huge sausage fingers. <laughs> it's just like, I remember I was a pitcher in Little League and he would just catch the ball with my, with his bare hands. Um, no catcher's mitt. And you know, my dad's like, you need to get a job. So I got this really crappy job, the, the kind that's good for building character um, as a janitor in this boat store. I was cleaning toilets, mopping the floors. And then my mom one day comes and she says, she says to me, hey, the scuba diving boat, this private boat that takes you know, divers out to the islands is looking for like a young kid to help with equipment, fill up the scuba tanks and just kind of like a jack of all trades. So she said, they're willing to, I talked to the owner and he's willing to try out. So I, I got this interview. I went on a day trip and part of the deal was if, if, and I was just working for tips only, but part of the deal was they would teach me how to, they'd certify me to scuba dive. So I got certified at 13 the interview went well, and I ended up working on this boat from 13 to almost 16, and it was like an incredible experience, like a Jacques Cousteau type environment. And, and you know, I, I had to grow up, grow up very fast. I remember the first one of my scariest moments was being woken up at 13 at two in the morning out of a total REM sleep, and this Irish captain Mike would was like a big bushy, blonde reddish mustache. Hey, get up. Um, get your wetsuit on. You, you got to dive on the anchor. It's it's stuck, and that's something I would do in the daytime because it was just faster, right? They would just when the anchor gets the chain gets wrapped around the rocks, it's just much faster to send a diver on it to unfree it, and and then off you go. Or else you could spend like an hour trying to you know figure out the jigsaw puzzle. But I was like, I knew we're at San Miguel Island, which was a shark infested water because it was a seal sea lion breeding ground it's two in the morning the visibility is shit which means you can probably see like a foot in front of your face i'm like 13 at, and i'm thinking all this in my head like you want me to do what like i got it and i was just like getting out of bed and slowly getting my wetsuit on and, and all this is like in my head right and this is like a lot of people i think deal with this with with fears and career change they make up this crazy story and it just you're we're good good at doing that you know <laughs> you're imagining this like terrible scenario and i'm like man the freaking shark's gonna be on me and you know but i had to do it i was just like i had enough i had enough uh 
you know, I didn't want to let these guys down because I was a new guy. And, and so anyway, I got my tanks on, I dove with my dive light and dove down there. I still remember this chain is wrapped around this huge ledge, the size of a freaking truck. And every time the boat would rock, this ledge would just lift up and then boom. And then the dust cloud would go. And, and I was seeing like sea lions buzz by me with the bioluminescence. And I just had my dive light just shining into the murky water. And I got down there. I, I blew the bubbles. I just shot a bunch of bubbles up to let them know to pay out the chain and swam around and unfreed it, got up. And I was like, okay, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know? And I feel like that's, that's the, the moral of the story, right? It's like never as bad as we think it's going to be. Uh, but that was like my first moment of really overcoming fear and dealing with it. Um, and, and then fast forward, my dad says, we're going to take the trip, you know, and, and I, I have immense respect, even though my dad and I have disagreed on many things. Uh, we're, we're still close to this day, but he was like, I don't want to be the guy talking about sailing around the world and never doing it because, because there are those people in, in the Harbor. They're always talking, they're living on the boat, talking about the dream and listening to Jimmy Buffett song and they never untie the boat. Right. So he's like, we're, we're fucking doing it. And, and I was like, man, I, by then I'm almost 16. I'm, I'm making good money. I'm during lobster season, trading my lobster to the local sushi restaurant. I have like $500 of credit. I got dive gear I'm sponsored by the dive shop. I was living a good life. Like had tons of money. All I wanted to do is get my driver's license and go chase girls with my friends. And my dad's like, we're going on this trip. And I was like, the last thing I want to do is, is go on this trip to New Zealand. And anyway, I get on the boat, had a fun time in Mexico. Then we went from Acapulco to, to the Marquesas Islands, which is the first uh, group of islands in the, in the French Polynesia. It goes Marquesas, the Tuamotos, Atolls, uh, where the French used to test the bomb. And then, and then the Society Islands was this, you know, uh, Tahiti, Marea, Borbora. I made it to, my dad and I started arguing about seamanship in, in the South Pacific. And it just blew up. Like it was like having two captains on a boat. And I, my mom years later said, look, the, the thing that your dad and I realized was you're in right in most cases, but it drove your dad crazy. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I think this is again, another learning experience, right? It, reflecting back on this, you can't have two captains. Like I always laugh when I see coast CEO, I'm like, come on, there's one captain of the ship, like one person, I don't care who he is, male, female, um, transgender or whatever. It's like one person is in charge, right? It can, there can be only one person in charge. And you have, um, and I learned that lesson in Tahiti. My dad sat me down. We almost went, went, it almost got physical. We had a big blowout. And he's like, look, son, obviously you don't want to be here. I think the best thing for the family is, you know, call, call your old boss and see if you can get your job back. And and then we'll figure out how you get home from here. And so I left, I grabbed the backpack. I found a boat sailing, a catamaran sailing to Hawaii, to Hilo. They needed help crewing. Um, I grabbed a backpack, a couple hundred bucks of my own money. And, and off I went uh, and never looked back. <laughs> I mean, and I'll be honest, like probably first three nights cried like a baby, you know, like what the, what the hell did I just do? <laughs> yeah. But then you just like, it's over time to move on, you know? Yeah. It's amazing how that experience would have transferred itself into your life going forward where like you're ultimately completely alone there, aren't you? Yeah. And yeah, you've had those sure. periods later on in your life where you're completely alone, but it's okay. Yeah. And so I think I've, 
I've had enough of those situations where, and seeing the impact when, so I, I didn't talk about this, but I, and I know we're, we're, we're probably running out of time, but I got recruited as a sniper instructor at a time when the Navy SEAL sniper program needed an update. We did, we realized we didn't have a great program. We had old technology, old, old curriculum. And so we were able to bring in like the best of the best, like teachers from all around the world, all, all different, uh, different areas of, of life. And uh, something I really identified with was this, this guy, Lanny Basham, who was a gold medalist that had, had wrote a book about positive psychology and performance psychology back when there were, when the psychologists of the 70s said, no, 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 we're just going to make you feel good about being number two. And he's like, I don't want that. I want, I want to be the best. And he, and he had developed this program because he had access to all the gold medalists on the U.S. team. And he put this put together all their habits and traits in the same way I want to do for my book, Invisible Dominance, is put together, like only go after these people that have had the sustained mental performance and it put a program together, just like my friend Lanny did. But I, I used this program. I was recruited to come help with the pilot program and add my two cents because I had combat experience in Afghanistan. And the guy that recruited me, Bob, says, look, you got to come down here. I, I was an advanced sniper instructor. And he said, give up your cushy kind of, I was going to be a, a BUDS instructor, a SEAL instructor, which is a very kind of cushy job. You can, you know, finish your degree. And um, he's like, give that up. You know, the guys need you. So I, I did. And, and then he said, when I came down there and agreed to to take orders down there, he's like, hey, by the way, I'm retiring this year. So you're, here's the keys, you know, <laughs> like, oh, man. But I had... I had my own little lab and I remember uh, teaching, uh, like putting out the curriculum and said, look, guys, one of the basic things we did was no more negative feedback as an instructor. If you see a student making a mistake, I don't want you just yelling at him like a drill instructor and pointing out all these mistakes because what you're really doing is you're programming him for failure. And anyone with an earshot is picking up on the negative um, so if I say a common thing is guys flinch on the rifle, they anticipate the recoil. And I guarantee you, even after this show, you're going to be thinking about flinching because and that's an example of how powerful it can be. So if I see a guy flinching or I, my instructors do, I would say, don't give him the positive feedback opposed to the negative. And that would be like, hey, slow down, take a deep breath, go through your shooting program, make a nice, smooth trigger pull. That would be the correct feedback. Because if I go, don't flinch, this guy is now has a complex about flinching. His shooting partner has a complex about flinching. Probably the pairs on the other side of him are thinking flinch. Or, Am I flinching? And it just spreads like coronavirus. And so positive feedback versus negative is so powerful. It's in teaching, coaching. And I've seen this. The other thing I saw was the students would always talk about what's a good shooting score. And because we had instructor mentors, they would always say, oh, we would say, oh, if you're shooting like 90, 95 percentile, that's really good. I said, guys, stop it. The instructors, I said, you just tell them we expect perfection. A good score is 100. And when we started telling that and setting the bar for the first time in the course history that I'd seen, we started having perfect scores, like incredibly hard shooting tests, but people were scoring perfect. And I just saw it. I'm like, wow, this stuff works, you know, and it just really made an impact on me. The, the mental rehearsal, 
rehearsing things perfectly, but also rehearsing contingencies. As, as a pilot of airplanes, I I have a departure emergency. The worst possible time to have an emergency is when an airplane is taking off because you're full of gas, you're heavy, you're low to the ground, you don't have enough you know altitude to kind of maneuver. And, and instinctively, every pilot wants to pull back on the stick and keep the plane flying. If you have an engine failure or a fire or something, but you have to push the nose down to get airspeed over the wings to fly to the crash point and be able to then flare and land. I rehearsed this over and over my head. It's just an example of like a terrible scenario, but I've imprinted the the right response because you know if it ever does happen, I want to be in a I want to do the right thing because you have a few seconds to decide. I and I and I lost a close friend of mine years ago that that pulled back and lawn darted in Santa Monica airport in a ball of fire. But um, anyway, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a, an idea. <laughs> the mental that's stuff I really enjoy. That's a nice, that's a nice way to end the podcast. Yeah. And a ball of fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brandon, man, it's been a pleasure and I've taken so much value from this episode and I would happily sit here for the next hour or two, just talking about stories and taking more value. But I also value your time and uh, let's do it again. I'm sure we could do it again and maybe get Kemal on board as well. Do that'd be great. Get get a three way conversation going. Yeah. It could be very interesting. So, but until then, um, please let us all know where we can find you and your books and all the good work you've, you've done. Um, Let us know where we can get that. Yeah. So uh, my full name, Brandon Tyler web.com. Uh, and you can find everything there. Um, I'm very active on Instagram, just Brandon T as in Tyler Webb, uh, Brandon T Webb at in, on Instagram. I I was in New York and a guy DM me and said, "Hey, I read one of your earlier books. Can I come by for a signing?" And then he had some. He wanted to make some career change, and he showed up. I signed his book, and he said, "Yeah, thank you so much." He's like, most people I DM on Instagram never answer me back, so I really. I do try if it's if it's a meaningful outreach, I I answer every one of them usually like personally. So don't be afraid to you nice know, reach out. Brilliant, Brandon. Well, thank you, my man, and I look forward to reading more of your books and uh, to seeing more of your books come to fruition and uh, keep yeah, up the good work. Inspired. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.